So what was your favourite part of the holidays? Really? You sure? Okay. And uh, Disneyland? You uh, you liked that? When we went there? It was okay. Okay. <laughs> and uh, Vietnam with the snorkeling and the helicopter ride. The no. The vast landscapes of wondrous scenery didn't do it for you. No, your favourite thing was Radio Wolfgang. Huh. What's that? The app. You really like the Radio Wolfgang app? Huh. Okay. Cool. And the hotel? No, that wasn't your favourite. Still, yeah. That's. It's just. You're only five years old. You sure Radio Wolfgang was your favourite thing? And getting ice cream. Right. The Radio Wolfgang app and ice cream. Great. Good summer. There's a potential for violence in every single person, rather in the same way that there's a potential for dysfunction of almost any human system. You're not gonna get away with this. Yeah? And what are you gonna do? Huh? What are you gonna do about it? You're out of it, pal. You're on your own. Our culture wants to replicate itself as well. So we get into this twin track of our genes wanting to replicate themselves, our cultures wanting to replicate themselves. And in a sense, we are the sort of innocent bystanders watching these two evolutionary reproductive processes going on, trying to mediate them. Back off, man! I'm sick of your shit, and so's my gang. Your gang? What's that supposed to mean? What it means, Colonel, is that if you know what's good for you, you'll stop trying to run everything. Stop it! Undoubtedly, I do think we are violent by nature. At the same time, I think that we are cooperative by nature. I think we, what's interesting in terms of cultural evolution is the evolution of the law, because the law, of course, is a massive uh, human endeavour. I think what it's there to do is to help regulate that, the complexity of that relationship between every human being as a unique individual and the communities to which they need to belong to flourish. I'm sick of all this shit! I'm going to make another camp for hunters! You guys want to have a little fun. Yeah! In the end, what we must ask is, how does this affect individuals? Being born, growing up, going to school, adolescence, then becoming young adults. This is the age when young men are most productive in terms of violence. And how does this translate into psychological mechanisms? 
that makes them behave in an aggressive way. Hello. We're not going to behave in an especially aggressive way, I don't think. Uh, welcome to Science Ish with me, Rick Edwards, and Dr. Michael Brooks. Hello. <laughs> Amazing delivery. <laughs> so, so, so glad you're here, as always. So, Science Ish is, well, this. This is Science Ish. And what we do is we take a work of fiction and then we look at the science within it and explore it by asking three. On the whole, quite difficult questions. We have variable success in terms of answering. I mean, on the whole, I think we don't answer them. But we try. This episode, we're going to be looking at Lord of the Flies. A book, no less. Um, we <laughs> what, don't... they made a book of it? Yeah, <laughs> I know. The film did so well. <laughs> to be fair to Lord of the Flies, that, that isn't what happened. Um, William Golding wrote the book. Good book. Great book, yes. Um, and and then a film, maybe two films would be made of it. But the book is kind of indelibly uh, imprinted on my on my brain. I haven't read it since I was at school, but I can remember it um, very clearly. Yeah, and I think it's the kind of book that that sort of exists almost in the national psyche, isn't it? Yeah, everybody knows about this book. Everyone knows what you mean when you say, "Oh, it's all gone, Lord of the Flies." Yeah, totally. So I, I mean, I suppose we'll do a very um, brief uh, rundown of the plot. A group of school children survive a plane crash on an island which is deserted um, and then they're kind of left to their own devices um, to kind of get on with things. And they, they do get on with things. Oh, God! They broke my glasses! Sometimes not perfectly. <laughs> uh, and so some of the uh, some of the guys get it. <laughs> And, uh, it's messy, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. It's, it's an absolute mess. Um, and they split off into factions, and they kind of got like the, the poor little clever one who's obviously called Piggy, and he's got his <laughs> little glasses. How much am I ruining this? People know, don't they? People know that, that it doesn't end well for Piggy. Yeah, yeah, I think, they, I think we have to be up front and say, if you don't know it, you should. Yeah, just go and, I mean... Yeah, fuck you. Read the book. <laughs> <laughs> um, basically, uh, Piggy falls down a bloody cliff or something. Yeah, it? yeah, he does. Um, well, I say fall because I guess uh, it, it's not entirely self-motivated, <laughs> shall we say? No, no, no. That's the book. I mean, it's essentially a thought experiment that William Golding has done. Yeah. What, what would happen if yeah you put uh, a load of kids on an island? And, and left them there. And it's the kind of thought experiment that, that scientists would love to turn into a real experiment. But there's this little thing called ethics that says you can't really do that kind of stuff. Boring. <sighs> Is there any way you could do it? Could I mean, you do it in secret? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's been done in secret. Mm. But, you know, people have thought about, you know, what happens if you just put babies on an island together Yes, a hundred babies. You know, make sure you feed them and take care um, of their needs. Also, I'm I've surely we're making this into a reality TV show. You can imagine the kinds of parents that would sign up their kids for this, can't you? <laughs> yeah, but you just do a bit of, um, you know, test tube stuff. And then, yeah, so yeah, it's not clear who the parents are. Yes, we'll just give ex- consent exactly, from the laboratory. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and then, so you just let them grow up and see what happens. A human baby on, a, on an island is just going to die, isn't it? Yeah, you'd have to take care of them. In yeah. some way that but they how couldn't do you do really. That, that isn't going to interfere know. with the experiment. It's quite important. Isn't yeah, it? you could leave like bottles of milk around for a while. It's like I'm sure TV producers could come up with like means of doing this. It's basically like you know Bear Grylls the Island, but with babies, isn't it? Yeah, 
But it's a great pitch, Michael. <laughs> let's, let's, let's get to Channel 4 immediately after this. So listen, the one thing I think Bear Grylls is missing is babies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Unaccompanied babies. Yeah. But this thought experiment has been done. Yeah, I mean, scientists like to imagine what would happen. But, I mean, their answers that they come up with are, you know, suggestions. So, you know, what they think is that, that we would, you know, develop language or these babies would develop language. They would eventually develop culture. They would probably split into factions and tribes. They would develop beliefs. Are they, are they doing this in a single generation? Is that the... Some things probably wouldn't emerge for generations. Like, mm. you know, really sophisticated language might actually take a long time to emerge. But it may not. I mean, there's been examples where there was um, a school for the deaf in Nicaragua where the kids at the school just invented their own sign language. And that has just blossomed and evolved and carried on and been passed on down through the generations. So there are examples of language kind of exploding out of nowhere. So that's Noam Chomsky's view, that we are hardwired somehow. Our brains are hardwired to, to come up with language, forms of language. And that's kind of in contrast to the, the blank slate yeah. way of looking at it. Yeah, because there's so much that comes out of us naturally. So if you have, you know, you know, a woman has a baby, the baby instinctively sort of goes for food, knows it's hungry, knows that the mother is there. You know, a mother hearing a child cry will lactate. So there's kind of all this stuff is kind of built into us. Uh, for our survival. And I think language is probably another one. Yeah, I'll buy it. I'll buy it for now, You'll buy it. Um, so but- i tell you about a really interesting experiment that was done. Yes. If, if I'm allowed to. Yes. Um, so, so there was this, I think it was zeb- zebra finches. They- zebra. Zebra finches. Zebra I mean, finches. You- what? Really? You're British. Zebra. zebra. Fin- I can't. Zebra. Zebra finches. Oh, no. Do we say sound- zebra or zebra? Zebra. No. Zebra. Yes. Really? Yes. Okay, I'll try it. Zebra finches, the, only the males sing. They learn to sing from copying the males, so the next generation learn. So if you strip the, away the, the, the teacher, zebra finches will try to sing, but they'll sing really, really badly, and they won't do the normal call. And then what happens is, that, so they develop this kind of weird call that isn't very good, and then their next generation, they try and teach them using that weird call, and within five generations they're back to being able to do it for themselves. So, so the fifth generation of zebra finch actually does the perfect zebra finch call again. So there's some kind of hard wiring about how you are supposed to vocalise as a zebra finch. That's insane, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. What this all comes down to, really, is this kind of dualism between human nature and human culture. And clearly a big part of both of those things, actually, is violence, yes, um, and uh, violence is 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 writ uh, pretty heavily. In, yeah, yeah. In order to so fly. no more talk about zebra finches and yeah, singing yeah, and to, lovely. Let's know, go to the good stuff. Breastfeeding <laughs> mothers. We're on to violence now. Yeah, uh, that's going to be our, our main focus, and rightly so. So our first question is going to be: Are we savages? By that I kind of mean: Are we inherently violent? Uh, and that's the question that we put first to primatologist Dr. Kit Opie of UCL. What we find from a study of primates, actually, is that they are not very violent. They will avoid any kind of harm to themselves if they possibly can, because, of course, it could be catastrophic. So much more likely that there are going to be quite sophisticated sort of rituals of dominance and subordination 
in order that even the dominant animal doesn't get harmed. Of course, there are times when that doesn't happen and primates uh, do hurt each other, but nothing like the scale uh, that we see amongst humans or is depicted in the book. In primates such as baboons or chimpanzees that are in large groups, it's much more likely that there is going to be uh, some kind of level of violence as they establish and maintain the dominance hierarchy within those groups. So yes, chimpanzees have been known to have violent encounters, but even amongst them, it is a sort of opportunistic approach. A group of male chimpanzees will patrol the borders of their range, and if they find a male from another group on his own, then they'll attack him, and they may end up killing him. If, on the other hand, there are two or three males together, then they will very quietly move away uh, so as not to attract any attention. We also, on the other hand, have their very close relatives, sometimes called the pygmy chimps uh, or the bonobos, and they do exactly the opposite. So they have group encounters that mainly include sex, and they are, if you like, the flip side of uh, the chimpanzee. And it's... You know, it's debatable whether we are more closely related in our uh, behaviour to the chimpanzees or to the bonobos. So, yeah, I, I suppose that is debatable. But one, It's not one very thing debatable, that, though, is it? Mm, I, mean, I think we're much more like the chimps. Yeah, it is, it's a short debate. <laughs> Which do you think? Chimps. Good. So, the, But there is violence, but there's just... A lot less violent, seemingly, than in, in human um, existence. Yeah, I mean, there's f- probably fewer of them. They've got f- less access to technology for violence. They've got a lot more to lose. If they had guns, <laughs> yeah. they'd be going to town. I think they would. <laughs> 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 I mean, it's a, it's a Have you not idea. seen Planet of the yeah, Apes? Yeah, yeah I can say. I think we have done uh, a substitution <laughs> about this. <laughs> so, but my point is that... The, they have much more to lose if a battle goes wrong in some ways than than we do. So, so of course, we have more violence. And I guess there are just quite a lot of disadvantages to to being violent within the animal kingdom that maybe we that we're not um, going to be subject. Yeah, to. I mean, so if it goes wrong, obviously, you know, if you're if you're slightly injured, you know, you don't go to hospital. You know, you have to live with that injury, and it heals or it doesn't heal, and you you might die. So they have evolved or we have evolved mechanisms that that sort of circumvent the need for you know absolute violence and you know you get gorillas that will kind of fight with each other to a point but nobody gets hurt you mm. know because it's about establishing dominance it's about saying look i could hurt you i've proved that i could hurt you so i'm not going the to threat of violence yeah the threat is enough to make them back off um so if you didn't have the threat of violence would it just be impossible to maintain a hierarchy and you just end up with a, with anarchy so that's the interesting question, isn't it? Is is it possible to have a society without violence? And for me, you know, we ask the question about whether humans are inherently violent. 
And I think we actually are because I think that's you know that's the way we've established our social groups. And our social groups really matter to us. They're, they're mm. important to us. They're they're what's made us achieve so much. And I I can't see a way in which you know ultimately you could do this without sort of some kind of threat of physical harm. You're saying that you think that we are inherently violent. Yeah, we are. I mean, you, I, for me, I think you see it in children, the way they play together. Sometimes they resort to violence. And and it's like the, the ultimate thing that we don't want I to happen to us. I think you've probably taught your children <laughs> to be violent. I was going to say, it does depend on the environment in which they grow up. Mm. But, yeah, and, and you certainly will pass that on to kids if you're violent towards them. That, you know, they will see violence as the as the way to kind of solve issues. But I do think there's something in us that fears physical hurt and harm, pain, and we all know that that's the case. And therefore, and, and you, of course, you get this spectrum of personalities within a group. So I imagine you're, I mean, you're quite a competitive guy. I imagine, you know, you got into a scrape or two. Yeah, but I've, do you know what? I've never hit anyone. I would never, I've, I've been beaten But up. you've threatened it, haven't you? And you're six foot four. No, I don't know if I have threatened it. I mean, once. The only time I can ever remember threatening anyone was when they pushed uh, my, my best mate on the dance floor. And uh, and I just came over and, and and squared up to the guy and said, "If you touch him again, I'll fucking kill you." <laughs> um, which you know, yeah, seemed like the right thing to do at the time. I should say, there's no way I could have done that. Really, <laughs> like I I, I wouldn't. Yeah. I'd be I I'd embarrass myself in a fight. I, I can only remember throwing a punch once in my life and landed it. Yeah, that's right, <laughs> Jeremy Sidafin, if you're listening. Yeah, big up, Jeremy. Yep. Um, How's the face? It <laughs> still hurts, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> and stay down. <laughs> but, you know, it's that threat of violence. You know, that, that's the thing. Well, we, sorry, that we, isn't a threat of violence. That's you hitting okay. Jeremy in the face. But the threat of violence is the, is the point, isn't it? That's what we want to avoid. So, you know, and our intellectual capabilities allow us to avoid that. Mm. You know, we, we can, you know, get out of, you know, being hurt or having to hurt somebody through you know our cognitive abilities but i still think it's there underlying mm. well not everyone agrees with that for example professor gwen adsheed when it comes to the question of being violent by nature i'm not sure i really i think that humans are violent by nature violence it literally covers a multitude of sins and to bundle them up as all being the same and, and innate simply doesn't make any sense and actually doesn't really do justice to the issues what is the message being communicated so I don't think that violence is innate I think it's a dysfunctional way of communicating a highly dysfunctional way of communicating because it undermines something that we know really is part of I think of human relating and function which is about cooperation I think if we look at our evolutionary status, we actually are you know, programmed, if you like, to use... I don't, I'm not sure I like that language, but in fact, I really don't like that language. But, but we do very naturally live in groups, and cooperation is a very important part of the way that we flourish. We can't have kids stealing and just running wild. We're going to have to have stricter rules. Hand out demerits, I guess. Demerits? <laughs> demerits for grand larceny? The other example I often give in this context too is that I used to work in a maximum security psychiatric hospital uh, which preferentially was admitting huge number of men who were admitted to the hospital because they were so violent and because they had a mental illness that significantly increased their violence. Now, you might have thought that all day, every day, 
you know, sort of alarm bells would be going off and people would be bashing each other and attacking each other all day, every day. But what was remarkable about, you know, maximum, about secure psychiatric facilities is that the levels of violence are very low. Given that we've admitted people who you might have thought were the epitome of natural violence and indeed mental illness that makes that worse, you don't see that. Actually, people stop being violent because the culture strongly dissuades against it. And so the people who are who continue to be very violent in that cultural context are either you know, grievously mentally ill or perhaps are very committed to being antisocial or a bit of both. I like the idea that violence is just like a dysfunctional form of communication. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a nice idea, isn't it? But don't you think it's, it's a sort of, it comes from a wish list. I wish this were true. Actually, hmm. if you have the view that nothing is programmed in and you don't believe that people are inherently violent, then of course you have to explain violence somehow. And you say, oh, well, it's just because they couldn't express themselves properly. Right. Which is all very well, but I think you could probably find a lot of examples where people are very eloquent, very able to communicate, but just really want to kick off. But that could be a sort of... Yeah, evil... football hooligans aren't saying, look, can we talk this through? Otherwise, I'm going to have to kick your fucking head in. I, but I feel like that's a slightly different thing, though, because then you're not really using the, the threat of violence. You're just saying, I enjoy the violence. But it's not a substitute for communication, is it, at that point? No, no, definitely not in that, but I think, that's, I think it's just a separate... Oh, okay. Kind of violence. Yeah. But what I did, what I kind of I wasn't sure about is why she would say, okay, violence isn't inherent, but a sense of needing to cooperate is. Like I don't know how you'd yeah kind of arrive at that. Like why why well, I one mean, not so, the other? So or? we can all agree that cooperation is a good thing. You know, if you're yeah. living in a society where you know you want somebody to go off and collect the food, you want somebody else to do another job, you want somebody to build the housing or whatever, then you know you've got to cooperate. So it's probably best not to kind of smash someone's face in because then they won't do the job that they need to do. So so we all work together, and even if they annoy you and frustrate you, you kind of find a way to get past it. Yeah, but also what we were talking about earlier, which is that the threat of violence is quite useful for getting stuff done and maintaining yeah, order yeah, yeah. in in a society, yeah. in a cooperating society. It's, Almost yeah, like exactly. cooperation is difficult without it. Yeah. So if you're living in a kind of you know tribal society where somebody wants to be really lazy, you're not going to let them be really lazy and eat. So either you withhold food from them. Or you, you know, you make them an outcast or whatever, which is something they would fear enormously. But they still might be quite difficult to motivate. And the threat of violence, especially if it's like, okay, all the all the blokes in the village are going to kick you if you don't get on and do something. Then you soon sort of get this cohesive society. So we get that kind of sense of I just want what I want, but I can't really have what I want unless everybody benefits. But there is a, a kind of tension. That is hard to kind of resolve, isn't there? Yeah, which is why we've sort of developed societal rules, we've developed codes of conduct that get passed on down through the generation. It's why we've developed law, actually. You know, and, yeah. and everybody basically signs up to this contract of this is how we behave in this society, and if you don't behave in that way, then we are going to punish you. So there's a kind of coercion there, and and it used to in, always involve pain, you know, or, you know, yeah. some kind of punishment, you know, whipping, flogging, you know. Drawn and quartered, that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> drawn and quartered is one of the worst punishments in the end, isn't Obviously, it? Obviously, <laughs> that's quite a serious You won't do that again. <laughs> no, you're right, I won't. <laughs> uh, 
and as our technologies have developed, you know, so our laws have had to develop as well. Um, and, and so, you know, we have laws about war even now. So between societies, which is where, you know, most of the violence happens now, between different groups, you know, so we've had to develop international law. You know, you can go so far and no further, which is why we're having these kind of conversations about drone use and things like that. You know, do we want autonomous weapons? Well, if one side has them, one side doesn't, you know, we don't know what's fair. So, so we have taken this idea of the law and just like ramped it right up to the point where our whole sort of human society is sort of finding ways to avoid unnecessary violence. It's interesting that you bring up the, the fact that you kind of have to have these agreements between societies about how a war may or may not be conducted. Because I can remember when I was a kid and you sort of first heard about that um, football match uh, that they had on Christmas Day yeah. in, in the First World War. And just being like really baffled, yeah. Because you sort of think, but how do you make sure that neither of them just don't take the piss? Because <laughs> if I'm, I mean, sneaking, maybe maybe I'm a, a terrible in. person, yeah, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if I've got an Uzi, then I'm doing well. <laughs> but like, yeah, like taking a weapon and then you're sort of playing football, and then suddenly you just get like a, a signal from you know, from the, the commandant behind you yeah. and just massacre everyone. Yeah. Surely that's the... Um, I mean, that's what I would have done. But, but See, I told you you were inherently violent. No, I'm, I'm just inherently thinking of ways I can win. <laughs> <laughs> so for you... But that's interesting, isn't it? Because you want to kind of subvert this law. Whereas these, these guys who played football together on Christmas Day, they were clearly... There was no antagonism between them, them and the opposition no. on an individual level. No. It was all about the tribes that they stood for, the mm. nations that they stood for. Mm. And so we've made war into this kind of weirdly civilised thing where it's not about individualised aggression anymore, but people are willing to give their lives in the service of their tribe and group and everything else. We've got to be one group again! I agree! You can join my camp and have all the meat you want! Oh, yeah! So is there an argument to say, then, that there's a, a potential for violence and, you know, evil in, in all of us that is actually sort of counterintuitively being driven by... Uh, culture or the culture that you find yourself in yeah possibly i wouldn't use the word evil because i think evil is something that's sort of misunderstood or not even i'm not even sure it exists you know it's but you, you have a situation like something like nazi germany you find yourself in nazi germany part of the population you're not particularly well educated you're not eloquent you're not sort of rising up through the ranks you're just given a job to do and you do it and because it's your culture and you're surrounded by you know, people telling you that this is okay to do it, then you do it. So this is the, the argument of the banality of evil, Hannah yeah. Arendt's argument, where, where she argued that Eichmann, Adolf Eichmann, who was basically the organiser or one of the chief organisers of the Holocaust, the whole thing, and he wasn't particularly evil as such. He was just, you know, she, she would argue that he was a dullard, he wasn't really very clever. He was a joiner. He liked to be told what to do. He liked to join a group and be in a group. And you know, actually, I, I'm, I was thinking about this. I've kind of can identify one of my friends who are, I'm not saying he's like Eichmann or anything, but I can see him as being that kind of character. <laughs> wow. Where, where he, I'm not going to obviously name him on air. Uh, <laughs> but that kind of, you know, nice enough guy, not terribly you know, sparky, you know, just gets on with his life probably would do what he was told to do if he kind of respected and admired the people who told him to do it. And and this is the banality of evil, that, that you know, we see it as this gross evil. And actually it kind of comes out of people just doing quite unremarkable things. You would have thought, wouldn't you, that if, if laws are being put in place to kind of keep everyone in check 
and in their own you know by you know the threat of punishment which is in itself a sort of like violence um that that would reduce the amount of violence that was being perpetrated in the world wouldn't you is that not would that not make sense that's the kind of purpose of the laws isn't it yeah and and i think it it has to to a certain extent that's why i want our second question to be is the incidence of violence decreasing uh, and this is something that professor manuel eisner from the university of cambridge has looked into in the very long run over tens of thousands of years i think the answer is that we don't really know because we have so little evidence on pre-neolithic societies my own research was much more limited in the sense but still quite ambitious in that i tried to track levels of homicide over the last 800 years roughly starting at 1200 and you can do this not just for england and wales but you can also do this for many other places across europe if you do that you find that homicide killing each other intentionally was much more frequent in the middle ages than it is these days and to give you a rough idea, in the Middle Ages, we think that homicide rates may have hovered around 20 to 40 per 100,000. Currently in the UK, the homicide rate is about 0.7 per 100,000. So it is about 60 to 80 times lower than it was in the Middle Ages. And that's pretty typical. Uh, for other places in Europe as well. I think this is not the only evidence that suggests that levels of violence have gone down. One of the things that are important to look at is levels of state violence. For England, we have good data on executions. And when we look at these data, let's say, for London or some of the other counties... The number of executions is just quite breathtaking, extraordinary. I've tried to extrapolate this to the United Kingdom at the present time. And if you take the rate of hangings in the early 17th century and you translate this in, onto the population of the UK these days, you would have about thirty to 40,000 executions each year. And that gives you an idea of the level of state violence. And that's not just executions. In addition, you have whippings, um, you have other kinds of corporal punishment. So that is an important other dimension. So extrapolating to our size of population now, from the 17th century, we would have been doing thirty to 40,000 state executions a year. Which seems about right, doesn't it? <laughs> like you just you just keep people in check with that. Like it's really... astonishing, isn't it? But then you have to say at that point, you know, you were being hanged for stealing a bit of cheese, weren't you? Yeah. Yeah. As you go back in time, you escalate the you know the the stakes for crime. Mm. And I guess in the 17th century, if you wanted to control crime, you had to make the punishments absolutely draconian because you probably didn't have a great police force. You didn't have any way of pinning crimes down on people. You know, you didn't have forensic science. There were fewer ways to kind of control people other than by just you know making it really really dangerous to commit a crime yeah it's definitely not favorable if i'm going to get hung no exactly but it, it definitely from from what the the professor was just saying there it does sound like violence is is reducing both yeah 
on an individual level and on a state level. Yeah. So, so why, why would that be? So, uh, so this guy, um, Norbert Elias, kind of had this idea that there's a civilizing process that goes on in any society where you, you basically become less and less violent. You, you let the state take hold of violence. And then actually, you know, with this sort of state-centered violence, you gradually become just more and more sort of well-behaved. And people realize that actually it's, it's okay to live without you know, violence in everyday life. And so every sort of civilization gradually becomes more and more dissociated from violence. Does he have any suggestion as to where it ends up? Do we get to a point where there is no violence? Well, it's hard to know. I mean, we can slide backwards as well. That's the other thing. So, so mm. if something goes wrong, you know, if people feel a bit like they've lost control or the state isn't doing the right kind so of thing. So there's some kind of social yeah, shock. You get, yeah, you get a sort of unrest and you get mm. violence back into everyday life. So, so it probably never rests at some sort of utopian point where there is no violence, because that would mean that kind of, you know, there's no crime. I'm afraid that's not going to happen. That's kind of the explanation that Professor Manuel would give as well, that it's, uh, it's kind of this civilising process. Yeah. Yeah, and people have made arguments that, that you know, there are definitely fewer wars in the world, the, the world is a nicer place to live in. Uh, Stephen Pinker's made this argument sort of very volubly. I'm not sure I buy all of it. I like to think it's true. I like to think the world's a better place to live in. But that's because I live in, you know, the south, southeast of England Yeah, in, in the 21st century. It's, it's quite nice. It's, we're all quite civilised. If I could go somewhere else on the planet, I would find things not quite so civilised. Is there anyone out there who's kind of arguing against this idea that violence is decreasing? Is yeah, um, so there's a guy, Professor John Gray, has come out and sort of said, you know what, um, Pinker's use of statistics is somewhat stretched. So I think Pinker took the number of combatants killed in war as a, you know, and that's decreasing. But then you could argue, and one of the big problems now is that, you know, combatant, non-combatant, that's a big you know, a big distinction that we can no longer make in, in the kind of 21st century. You know, Pinker didn't talk about the indirect casualties of war, people who were maimed by by troops, you know, the, the kind of horrible things that happen around a war, people who starve because a war is going on. So there's all kinds of reasons to say maybe, you know, it's a bit more complicated than just the world's getting to be a nicer place. Also, the world getting to be a nicer place, um, that immediately makes me think about inequality and whether inequality is, is going up or down. And I suspect that if you have economic inequality, then you're more likely to see violence. Well, it, it's kind of understanding of human nature and common mm. sense, isn't it? Yeah. Where you have inequality, you have people who will be frustrated, who will be in a position where they're seeing, you know, somebody else has got something that they don't particularly deserve why shouldn't I take that? Well, you know, going back to conversations we've had before, your only reason for not taking it off them is because you might get caught and punished. So has anyone done any studies, I and mean, I guess it would be quite difficult, but to try and link economic inequality to, I don't know, like homicide rates or, or something like that? Yeah, so so it's um, apparently it's conspicuous consumption is, is one of the problems that they have. So it's not that people are richer or poorer, but it, when you see and you're surrounded by people who are flashy about their, um, you know, their wealth, then that, that kind of drives... And, and interesting, it doesn't drive theft in terms of I want to get what they've got. It just dri drives violent crime, attacks, you know, homicide, killing. Homicide is killing, of course. Famously, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so you get this kind of um, rise in crime just from that sense that, well, you know, I'm so low in the pecking order, I've got nothing to lose, I'm just going to lash out. So that neatly ties into what you were saying about how it can, it can kind of go the other way as well, this civilising process. Because if, if, say, 
income and wealth uh, inequality was growing mm. um, at a particular time, then you would expect it to start becoming less civilised, the society, yeah. maybe. If you do assume that, then the path that we're currently on globally with sort of neoliberalism and stuff could mean that we're heading towards sort of de- a de-civilised state. Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, that's terrifying. Yeah, it is terrifying. And we live in... You know, in a bubble, really, here in what is quite a terrifying world. And you only have to look at, you know, the the Trump rallies. So, so you know, Donald Trump is basically sneering at the idea of poor people. Uh, he's sort of, you know, trying to keep people, talking about building walls. He's quite happy to have violence at his rallies. You know, mm. it's like, well, you know, you, you asked for it kind of thing. And, and that kind of attitude just stokes that kind of shame isn't the right word it's just people are incensed they're angry yeah, by, it's by just that like a base yeah anger isn't it yeah and 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 his attitude seems to be bring it on great stuff donald um so uh this I, is a, a quantum physicist on social yeah. theory <laughs> at long last <laughs> if you've been wondering what dr michael brooks <laughs> thinks about trump <laughs> Okay, so our third and final question is going to be, what does the future of violence look like? And we put that to all of our experts. I'm not sure whether I would bet on violence effectively declining over the next 15 years. It has been declining across the Western world over the last 15 years, but it may have come to an end, and we don't really know whether it's going to increase again. The signs of increasing intolerance and hatred are really quite concerning. And it's not entirely clear yet whether that will be a long-term trend that will affect violent behaviour. One shouldn't forget, though, that politically, tribally, motivated violence plays a relatively minor role. It's the kind of violence that attracts a lot of media attention, acts of hatred, highly visible acts of terrorism attract a lot of media attention, and quite rightly so. But we just should not forget the fact that most of violence, violence against women, child maltreatment, bullying, violence against young men getting drunk, that these are the types of violence that are the, in quantitative terms, are the bulk of violence, and that they are not political. I think it's important to remember that we've had this post-war consensus about liberal values and respect for each other and are working towards and maintaining the peace for, you know, 50 or 60 years. And and say in that context, we've seen, I think, you know, again, in social democracies at least, uh, a real push to that violence not being an acceptable way of dealing with, with conflicts and distress. But I think there must be a worry that if we give up that type of consensus and move back into some more feudal type of system where there's a small group of people who have a lot of power and money at the top and you know, a large group of people who are kept in poverty and, and ignorance at the bottom, that that is going to 
lead to more instability, at least more distress. There is always violence bubbling under um, in any society. So whenever a society is going through a great deal of change and the cultural norms that have kept violence at bay over years and decades start to fracture, that's when violence starts to, to rear its head again. So now, what, what are we in? We're in, a, we're in a, a time when there's huge amounts of change taking place in our society. People feel their very livelihood, their very life is being threatened. And their animal way of dealing with that is to blame outsiders, see outsiders as a threat, try to group together to defend their way of life against that. Much better, surely, is for us to recognise that that's how we are. That's our essential nature. We are just like baboons or those gibbons or those chimpanzees. We're, we're the same uh, under the skin. So let's give ourselves a bit of a break. Six million years is such a short time. Put it in context. Mammals have been evolving for 150 million years and mammals are not very good at being mammals. You can't expect humans to be very good at being humans when we've only been evolving on the path towards humanity for six million years. You know, give, us, give ourselves a break. Yeah, I don't mind giving ourselves a break, actually. I think we're doing all right. Yeah, I think we are doing all right. We're just being too hard on ourselves. <laughs> yes. Of course we're going to have a few little skirmishes yeah, along the way. Yeah. Scuffle we're just, we're here finding and there. our feet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good, good. <laughs> well, that's settled then. Everything's fine. One thing we haven't talked about is uh, that occurred to me was, you know, we actually subjugate a lot of our sort of nationalistic and tribal stuff into sport. You know, that's why sport was invented. Well, sport is, is just a kind of like theatrical performative version of violence isn't yeah, it yeah it's just it, yeah, fights exactly. yeah. but staged in but a staged. kind of in a fun yeah, way where you yeah. don't get hurt ideally yeah, yeah. it's like play fighting mm. and you know be- between nations and tribes yeah so, so maybe that's the future of violence is more sport and maybe that is what we should be measuring yeah but look how much sport there is <laughs> <laughs> sport is on the rise guys <laughs> That's the real violence. Yeah. Is violence just an essential evil, which is kind of Machiavelli's vibe? So I don't like the word evil. I think it's a phenomenon. Okay, is it an essential phenomenon? I think it's not going away. I don't see how you would get rid of it. So, you know, one of the ways you get rid of it, and I think we have, with some success, really, is through sport. And and sport is like a way of, you know, of... of ritualizing violence between nations or groups or tribes mm-hmm. or whatever and i think you can see actually there are various historical examples of when certain nations have played sport against each other it has kind of had diplomatic and political influence so there are ways to circumvent violence and sport i would argue is one of them okay let's have a look at our, our three questions then so first of all um we asked are we savages are we inherently violent we kind of come to the conclusion we think that we are i say yes and it's about enabling us to form societies yeah and maintain by use it by yeah maintaining order yeah 
with, with the threat of it. Uh, and our second question was, is the instance of violence decreasing? Yes. Yeah, I would say it is. But but as somebody pointed out, that's sort of big, big stage violence. We don't know about that, whether that's true of violence against women, you know, bullying, that kind of thing. I don't know. Yeah. So it depends how you define your violence, doesn't it? And we're not measuring sport at the moment, which we think <laughs> is an error. And then our, our third question uh, was, what is the future of violence? And you think just more sport, don't you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which, weirdly, William Golding doesn't go into. No, in the no if, they don't, if they had just got on the beach and had a game of beach volleyball or football or something like that, then maybe none of this would have happened. I'm not going to get away with this. Yeah? And what are you going to do? Huh? What are you going to do about it? You're out of it, pal. You're on your own. Science Ish is a Radio Wolfgang production presented by me, Rick Edwards, and Dr. Michael Brooks. The producers were Hannah Walker-Brown and Max Sanderson. The researchers were Cormac McAuliffe and L. Scott. This episode featured Dr. Kit Opie, Professor Gwen Adsheed and Professor Manuel Eisner. Mm-hmm.